two, one. Good evening and welcome to CAST, Mets 360 on CAST. This is your host, Brian Jora, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by ESPN and Fangraphs writer Dan Zimborski. Dan, as you probably know, is the uh, the creator of the Zips uh, forecast system, and we're going to be talking uh, Zips and, and Mets this afternoon. And Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Brian. It's always well, fun. Well, I want to get right to it, and when I see the projections come out, the first thing that I do is I look for the, the new guys on the Mets and, and see how you think that they're going to be doing. So let's start with uh, Wilson Ramos. Uh, obviously, we know he's a catcher. He's had some injury problems, and he's not exactly young. But the thing that stands out to me when the Mets signed uh, Ramos was how consistent his last two healthy seasons in 2016 and 2018 were. But uh, Zip sees him with about 50 points lower in on-base percentage and about 75 points lower in slugging. Um, is is that age or, or ballpark or both or, or something else? Uh, some of it is age. Uh, necessarily, uh, he's a catcher on the wrong side of 30. He has an injury history that Zips is aware of. So that, that plays part of it. The other part is that Zips is not entirely sold on his batting average on balls in play uh, in his last two healthy seasons. Because he's been around 300 for his career. He was up at about 350 in, in 2018. Uh, not quite as high in 2016, but still higher than you'd expect. Uh, his hard hit percentage is, is pretty good, uh, but Zips isn't buying that as his natural level of ability. Uh, so it does give him, you know, it does penalize him somewhat. If he keeps outperforming it, then Zips, you know, will catch on to that over time. But it's, it's, it's not... It's not confident that he's become the Ty Cobb of old catchers. <laughs> I know that uh, once he got traded to the NL last year that he, he ran a uh, balls on play somewhere around 400. So I, I was aware that uh, that was high. Um, I guess I, I was unaware that he, he ran such high numbers in 2016. Um, he, he, to me, he's an interesting guy because he seemed to be um, – I mean, I know catchers have odd development pro, um, uh, curves, but he seemed to develop maybe a little later than, than, than most standout catchers. Yeah, catchers are weird in that way. Sometimes they hit well in the minors and don't develop at all. Sometimes they drop off the face of the earth at, at young ages. You look at a whole bunch of, you know, 90s uh, catching prospects that had fairly short careers, uh, you know, Ben Petrick and and uh, Charles Johnson and, and Ben Davis. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's kind of interesting how catchers age. And then you have the guys who just last forever at, at roughly the same level of play, like A.J. Przinsky, who, who no one is going to confuse with, you know, Captain Science on the field. <laughs> uh, so, so it is interesting, and catchers are a little tricky. Uh, so there is more of a tendency to kind of regress towards the mean than to say if he was a slugging first baseman. Well, I guess I have a similar question uh, with Jed Lowry. Uh, obviously, he's dealing with the injury history now, but or the injury to his knee now, but uh, prior to that, he was coming off back-to-back 120 OPS plus seasons, and uh, Zips has him checking in at, at 94. He's older than Ramos, so I'm, I'm guessing that plays into it, but you would think that that would be balanced out by the less demanding position. So what's going on with Lowry. In in Lowry's case, a lot of it is age. Middle infielders in their mid thirties have a have a pretty depressing aging curve. Uh, Zips has undershot undershot Lowry the last two years, so it might be doing that again. But it's 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 naturally built in to be a little suspicious of of, of 
surprising performances unless it's you know surprised enough times. I think Larry's going to be fine as a player, uh, and but I do think that his age gives him some risk, and I think that baseball generally sees that risk, or he probably would have gotten a bigger contract. I mean, he's coming off to really legitimate all-star seasons. Yeah, um, you know, he he seemed like he was on that trajectory, you know, six eight years ago. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, fell off. And then the last two years, he's back to where he was eight years ago. So it, it, his career has definitely been a surprise. Yeah, after 2016, he looked like he was on the verge of becoming almost a role player uh, at, at that stage in his career. But he, 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 he started for Oakland in 2017. That was, just, you know, pretty terrific. Uh, I, I don't think the Mets will have anything to complain about, even if he's not at the same level as 2017 or 2018 because honestly they're not paying him like he is and the team has a lot of infield options it's it's they're not overly reliant on one player now one of those infield options and and coincidentally i guess uh, a, an older middle infielder is robinson cano and to me the zips forecast seems right on the on the money for cano but to me it's really interesting because you have him listed in in uh in uh, in war uh, order, and he's right next to uh, Jeff McNeil, who he's replacing. And I guess um, you you seem very positive on the deal in in the write up. Uh, and I just wonder how you balance taking on the salary that they did for a player of Cano's age when seemingly not getting any upgrade at the second base position. Uh, well, I think they're looking at it as more of a larger team construction issue. Uh, because you, you do need spares, and they are going to be flexible with McNeil. I, I, I would have liked to see McNeil at third uh, in, in 2019, although it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening unless, you know, there's a lot of injuries. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's so much that Zips is not liking Cano, as it just really likes Jeff McNeil. Uh, Cano is, is still a really good player. I think people are actually underrating him defensively still. Uh, the evidence suggests he's still a competent defensive player at second base, uh, and I and I was a little befuddled about how the Mariners used him last year uh, because they had a first baseman that they needed to look at. Uh, and at the end of the season, they were using him at fir- Cano at first base instead of looking at, like, Dan Vogelbach. Uh, so I, I, I do think he's fine as a second baseman. And I don't think the money is that big a deal because with free agency the way it is, it's it's if you have a lot of money to spend, it's really hard to spend it all unless you're getting a Harper or Machado, which the Mets clearly did not, and I don't think they ever were seriously even considering it. Uh, so, so there's only so many ways you can leverage money in baseball right now because, you know, you can't pay more for for uh, Caribbeans, uh, for uh, amateur free agents. Uh, you can't pay uh, over slot a ton because of the limits there. Uh, and I, I think that I mean, they they gave the contract to Bruce back essentially, uh, so they they did make some savings there. I don't think it was a huge amount of money that they added compared to what it could be. Uh, I think overall the the deal was more, much more questionable on the Mariners' side. Wow, um, uh, I, I'm going to take a, a second to uh, to to take that in. But the the one thing I I, I want to talk about immediately is. If they had that money that they were they were paying to Cano, wouldn't that have been better spent on uh, Keuchel? I, I, I personally think it would have been, uh, because I, you, you look at the rotation and you like, of course, you like the top four very much if they stay healthy. And that's the if. But 
you know, you're essentially going into the season with Jason Vargas as your plan A in the fifth starter position. And he's not someone I'd want to be my plan A. I want him to be my kind of like my plan G <laughs> or H. Uh, I think that Keiko would have fit pretty nicely in the rotation. Uh, it, it's helpful that he doesn't have uh, an enormous injury history like some of the starters in the rotation. Uh, you could plug him in as the 2-3 guy and, and probably has a better chance of staying healthy than, say, Stephen Matz does. Uh, and that, you know, takes some of the pressure off the other guys. Uh, so I am a little disappointed. I don't think that infield was necessarily where they needed to spend the money. Now, I don't think they spent it poorly, but I think they could have gone after a picture a little harder. Well, than we're did. in agreement there. So let's circle back to the to the place where you just floored me. Um, you, you were saying you were you were uh, <laughs> questioning the, the Mariners return. Was it taking on the contracts or was it the uncertainty about the prospects that they got? Or what exactly did you not like about the deal from the Mariners perspective? Well, I, I like the prospects. I mean, the prospects were terrific. I think that throwing Edwin Diaz kind of into it kind of makes it a, a trickier deal, especially because they had to take Jay Bruce back. I, I tend to think that Edwin Diaz should have been the, the, the price that the Mariners pay for not having to pay much on the contract. I, I, I don't think that, that they should have still been paying as much as they end up. Uh, I don't think the net gain for the Mariners is worth giving up Edwin Diaz, even with the prospects who I like. I would have preferred a straight-up trade for Edwin Diaz in that case. You know, I've, I've spent so much time thinking about this from the Mets' point of view that I guess I went no further than looking at the Mariners uh, jumping up in delight in getting out of the last five years of, of Cano's contract. You, you look at that team, they had, I think it was 89 wins last year. Uh, but they really overachieved, uh, according to Pythagoras. And it, it certainly when, when you're in the same division as the Astros, uh, your immediate chances are not good. So getting rid of that uh, contract and then uh, getting the prospects that they did, uh, you take on some short-term salary in, in Bruce and, and Swarzak, who are not totally useless if they're healthy. Um, certainly they weren't healthy last year. I... I, mm -hmm. I, I, I Diaz was phenomenal last year. Zips is um, uh, very uh, uh, bullish on him again in, in 2019. But at the end of the day, he's still a reliever. Yeah, and that, that of course, puts kind of a cap on his ceiling. He's never going to have a seven-win season or, or anything like that. Uh, it, just, it just doesn't happen. They don't, even, even in higher leverage, you, you can't squeeze seven wins out of a reliever uh, the way you can like Jake DeGrom because he, of course, was easily worth seven wins. No, I believe Diaz had uh, three and a half, uh, according to fan graphs, which is, which is, which is awesome for a reliever. For a reliever. And, and um, I, I don't know what the, uh, the, the 2019 projection for him is. It's probably not quite that good, but uh, it's going to be good. But the, he was essentially a one-inning reliever. The Mets are obviously going to leave him in that role. But can you think of anybody in, in MLB right now, any reliever, who, who would be better suited to be used as a uh, an, an all-around fireman coming in whenever the high-leverage situation was uh, than Diaz, especially now that the Mets have uh, Familia back in the fold? Well, you, the Yankees have a, are going to use a lot True. of pretty terrific relievers in that role. Uh, I think the problem is is managers aren't really incentivized to to use closers in creative ways unless they're really really sure about it because there's kind of this this uh, uh, for managers when you use a closer and he fails it's the closer's fault 
if you use a closer in a different way and he fails, it becomes your fault. Um, and an excellent point. And then certainly Mickey Calloway isn't on the firmest of ground after a shaky first year and then the new general manager being above him. But um, so yeah. so certainly they're, they're not going to rock the boat in 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 that regard. And I understand that. But just just his ability to come out and, and be so lights out and then familiar with all of the closing experience that he brings to the table. And he's still a, I'd, I'd say he's a, it, he would be at least an average closer if he was on another team. Yeah, I it, it's funny because I mean. Callaway has to know. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's nothing being said about it in the press, but he has to know that he's not the GM's guy, uh, and that always is a tricky position for a manager to be in. Uh, I, I do think Diaz will be fine. Uh, I, I don't think they'll have many complaints about him, even if they're maybe not squeezing as much high-leverage performance out of him as they possibly could, uh, because it, 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 there is probably a realistic maximum of leverage you can, you can squeeze out of a guy because you never really know when something is going to happen in the game and there'll be even a, a, a bigger leverage situation, a greater leverage situation. Uh, I think uh, the Mariners, I mean, the A's did very well. I think Blake Trinan had the highest leverage index in the majors. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it was somewhere around, he got it around two. And Diaz, I believe, was pretty far up there too with the Mariners. Uh, so it, it's not like uh, the Adam Warren situation with the Yankees where Warren was solid, but they're weren't really any high leverage innings for him it it's remarkable if if you would have a, a current fan of of baseball a, a younger fan and if you would show him a game from like the 1970s when goose gossage or tug mcgraw would come on and, and pitch three innings at a time and it, it didn't matter what three innings with those were if that's what the manager thought that's he was out there uh, pumping away and uh, it would be so refreshing to see that in a in a 21st century context. Yeah, I'd like to see that kind of role too. Uh, I know some teams have been playing around with more multi-inning uh, relievers, but it's it's still not quite like it was in the 70s. There'd be a lot of strange things when you look back at games in the 70s. People would wonder, like, why are all their legs <laughs> so thin? What is what is that flat green surface that they're running on? Indeed. Um, well, I, I want to talk about something that, that I don't think that you necessarily take very seriously, but I, I definitely enjoy seeing them, and that's you list the, uh, the number one comp for the player. And uh, to me, there were, well, a lot of them stood out, but I guess the two that stood out the most was you had Cleon Jones for Yuenna Cespedes and uh, Gary Templeton for Ahmed Rosario. And I was just wondering if you could talk about uh, those two for just a minute. Uh yeah, I it, I always like when I mean people always suspect me of of selecting the players that played for the same team that they were on. Uh, I know people thought I was just being mean when uh, Byron Buxton's top comp was Carlos <laughs> Gomez because that was it. I couldn't have picked a much crueler uh, comp for Buxton a few years ago, and as fate happens, he has kind of had that difficult career path that Gomez had, uh, but. But Cleon Jones, at his peak, he was a terrific player. He was um, one of my favorites. I mean, he was a big part of those late... Yeah. He was a big part of those late 60s Mets. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did he have an injury at some uh, in, Indeed, he did. Uh, me but to, to me, Cleon was, was much more of a... Um, uh, uh, of an average hitter, and Cespedes much more of a slugger. But of course, remember, this is when you go back to the late 60s, the shape of performance in baseball was very different. Uh... 
So it it it, it, it is an interesting comp, uh, and I always and I do like to publish the comps because even though players are compared to a giant group of vaguely similar players, uh, it, it it is fun to you know look back in history because I always get people telling me I didn't even know about this player until he came up in the comp list and looked at him. Uh, now, of course, Cespedes doesn't have the uh, batting average that Jones did at the time, but we're in an era where it's a really low batting average era. So when he hit like 282, 90 uh, in the seasons before 2018, that's that's like hitting 300 even in the late 60s. Uh, so you could say that Cespedes, even though he doesn't feel like that same type of player, there is there is something. All right, there. now how about uh, Templeton and, and Rosario? Because that that to me is very interesting. It is. Hopefully, well, maybe they'll be able to <laughs> trade him for for. For Ozzy Smith, uh, uh, um, I, 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 I think Templeton's probably another player that's kind of gotten uh, forgotten in history to some extent because a lot of times he is uh, the guy who was traded for Ozzy Smith, and people remember uh, what was that All Star quote? Was yep. he the one that said, "If I ain't, if, if, if I, I ain't starting, start, I ain't departing." <laughs> yeah, uh, but. I, I I think like Cesar Cedeno, he's another one of these guys who was very, very good as a young player, and he kind of fizzled out. I mean, Templeton was a legitimate star player in his early years. Uh, Rosario hasn't had quite that same career path. He's been a little slow to get going. But if Rosario turned out to have some out of um, Gary Templeton seasons in him, I, I don't think that anyone would no, complain about that. No, we would be thrilled. That. Um to, to me, it's real interesting that Templeton actually ended up having a very long career, and at the beginning, you know, he had a little bit of the hothead and, and, and that type of reputation, but I don't know if it was just a matter of because he stayed around or if something actually did change, but he was certainly the respected veteran at the end of his career. Yeah, it, it's interesting when, when a guy stops being a star, but then he plays for like another, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. Uh even even Cesar Cedeno didn't really do that. Uh, he 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 declined very quickly. But he was out of baseball by his mid thirties. Uh, Templeton, I mean, essentially had a full career for a middle infielder. I mean, yeah, he was in his middle thirties too. So maybe it's not the the best comparison to Cedeno, but he was around for a long time. Now let, let's talk about uh, another Mets youngster, and and that's uh, Pete Alonso. And uh, he started last year in in Double A, got the the midseason promotion to Triple A, has all this uh, hype around him, and and Zip seems to be uh, fairly bullish on him for a young guy who who doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Um, Brody Von Wagenen uh, indicated that he has the chance to come north uh, for opening day. Um, and, and I think that's a, a, a great change of, of, of pace, uh, certainly from what the, the Mets experienced under Sandy Alderson. He never would have considered doing that. But I am, you know, just a slightly concerned about uh, Major League Baseball pitchers being able to exploit um, uh, Alonzo right away. Uh, and I guess my question for you is, do you, do you feel he's any more uh, volatile than any other rookie in that regard? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, I mean, if you look at the projection, it's taking a lot off his minor league batting average. Uh, I know it was only like 250, 260 something in AAA, but he was hitting 300 uh, uh, in AA. Uh, I'm not as concerned with the strikeout rate because there's kind of a. Um, I can't think of the word I am, what I'm looking for, but 
I think people, when they talk about players who are really good hitters, sometimes the strikeout rate can be an overrated as an indicator because on some level, uh, when you're slugging 600 in a league, you're incentivized to swing as quite a bit. Uh, people were saying we're actually worried about Chris Bryant when he was a prospect because when, when he was in the minors, uh, in the high minors, he struck out a lot. Uh, he struck out something like 160 times the year before he, he hit the majors. But he was also incentivized to swing a lot because when you're slugging 650, you, you should be swinging a lot of pitches aggressively. Uh, you don't want to fall into that Ben Grieve trap where your play discipline is so good that you never actually aggressively go after it. Uh, so you have a Ben, Gre- ben Grieve, Jerry Hermida, you have guys like that, and they have trouble growing. Uh, I'm not so worried about the contact rate. Uh, I think Zips is, isn't actually being too crazy about Alonzo. I mean, it still gives him a sub-800 OPS. Um, but power usually will stick, and he does have pretty solid oh, power. Oh, he's got uh, awesome raw power. And and interestingly, you were noting the difference between his AA average and his AAA average. When he first got to AAA, I don't know if it was the, the more experienced pitchers or, or just a fluke, but it was one of those cases where he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. Uh, I think he had a sub-100 <laughs> uh, balls on play there for, for quite a substantial period of time there in AAA. So uh, I don't know if he adjusted or, if, like I said, if it was, it, it was just a, a number thing but I, I keep I find myself keep going back and forth I want to be excited about Alonzo but then you, you read about supposedly he's got uh, uh, two or three holes in his swing and just wonder if, if major league pitchers will be able to exploit that well I, I think that that might be some of the experience of being a <laughs> Mets fan uh, there's always a noted tendency uh, I know in baseball primer back baseball think factory back in the day we always had what we called the Mets fan self-immolation thread uh, where, where, where excited Mets fans would get together and tell each other what they were frightened would actually happen with the Mets during the season. So there's that kind of fatalism, I think, that, that I think is symbolic, is, it represents the fan base, that, that there's a lot of worry because the Mets, have had, Mets fans have had their hopes pulled out from under them quite a lot. All right, so I'm I'm gonna go from one extreme to the other. I'm 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 gonna go from from doubt and worry to um, unrealistic optimism, and and that's with Zach Wheeler. Uh, as you know, Zach Wheeler had a great second half last year. He had an ERA and a WHIP uh, numbers better than Degrom. Um, and I, I guess I got a, a two-part question for you. One, are you any are you aware of any studies? on extreme outliers like that, uh, numbers that are just so far uh, beyond what a player has done before. And, and also, um, Wheeler has, has had the, always had the stuff, but last year he was finally healthy and he pitched up to expectations. Um, so is, is there more reason because of that to be optimistic about another four-win season from him? Well, I think the, the biggest things to be happy about is his control was a lot better in 2018 than it had been uh, really ever uh, in a way and also his velocity was up to where people thought it would be as a prospect. He was throwing 96, 97 at times uh, and, and he hadn't really done that before and that tells me that, that his commands improved and that his velocity is up there. So uh, Zips doesn't actually give him a poor projection. Uh, it, I mean it gives him an ERA about three and a half which isn't that far from his overall 2018, 
But I do think there's significant upside there because his career was derailed uh, for injury. I mean, 2015, 2016, you're talking two years that were essentially complete wastes in a pitcher's development. And, and that's, hard, that's a hard thing to overcome. So I think I would actually take the under in the in ERA sense, not in war sense. I'd take the, the under for, for Wheeler's ERA in the projections. To me, uh, in the past, it seemed like Wheeler would get ahead of the, the hitter. He'd have two strikes on him, and he'd try to execute that perfect pitch on, on the black to, to get strike three instead of challenging uh, hitters with his stuff and he had the stuff to do that and I don't know if it was the case of a new manager and a new pitching coach or maturity on his part but he certainly seemed to be much more in attack mode last year when he got the two strikes yeah and and learning to punch out that final strike can can really bedevil some pictures uh, I, I, I think um, oh who am I thinking of Shoot, I had a player on the on the tip of my, oh, <laughs> sorry, it it, it was Nady Evaldi, and he always had you know high fastball velocity, but he really struggled w with the Marlins and and with the Yankees in getting that third strike, uh, so it's it's sometimes more difficult to learn than, 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 than you hope it would be. Now another pitcher that the the Mets are are hoping will will take a, a leap forward like. Wheeler did last year, and that's Steven Matz, and he actually pitched pretty well, except for one kind of major thing, and, and that's the gopher balls. He gave up too many homers, and, and not only were there too many homers, there were too many homers with men on base. Um, you know, if, if you were to describe Matz to, to somebody who had never seen him pitch before, you know, you wouldn't call him overpowering, but, but he's got good stuff, and I guess he throws hard enough for a lefty. And so the home, we come back to the home run rate. Do, do you think that that's something that a, that a pitcher can, can improve upon, or is that just who he is as a pitcher? Uh, I think to some extent he's probably always going to give up a few extra home runs. That's, that, that doesn't necessarily change, and his stuff is good. It's not overpowering. I, I don't think that his home run allowed rate will be as poor as it was the last two years. I think at this point he just wants to, you know, have full healthy seasons, throw 170 innings, and, and look on it from there. Because, I mean, he he did have an ERA under four. He did keep it in the park enough. Uh, I don't I don't think he's an ace. I don't think he's going to be an ace. Uh, but I, I do think he can keep the Gopher balls down a bit. Uh, and I I kind of have a soft spot about Zips being right with Mats because. Mats was someone that Zips really liked in 2015 uh, in my top 100 list the following season after he'd only made six starts with the Mets uh, in 2015, I think. Uh, it, Zips ranked Mats as the number 32 prospect in baseball, and that was much yes. higher than anybody else had. So I've always, I've always been motivated uh, in seeing him do well and, and, and kind of, you know, Make Zips be the one that was right. <laughs> as as Mets fans, we're we're wanting all of our pitchers to study Degrom and do what Degrom does, and and perhaps no one is better at moving the ball up and down in the strike zone than Degrom. Certainly, he goes upstairs more than any other pitcher on the Mets staff, and I think Matt started to do that last year. I think he's he elevated and he has enough stuff to throw up in the zone, and he did a good job of coming inside, but. He leaves a little too many balls right in the middle of the zone, and I think that's what kills him on the home runs. Yeah, and I think that 
luckily, I don't think he has the problem that, say, a Josh Towers had. The problem with Josh, Josh Towers, perversely, was that his control was too good. And sometimes if your control is too good, and you and you're and you're you don't ha you're not as good a picture at dealing with that like a Bob Tewksbury, then you get you're around the zone too much. You get hit hard. I don't think that's Matt's problem. I I think he'll be fine. I think he'll be a good two three guy for several now, years. Now a guy on the staff who who maybe you could kind of squint and see that as their problem is Noah Syndergaard. Syndergaard is overpowering. He does have great stuff. And, and yet, somehow, despite that combination, he's got a lifetime uh, 314 average on balls on play. And, and three of his four years in the majors have been higher than that. Um, so how do you explain that? that? That one has always befuddled me, because by all accounts, he shouldn't have such a high batting average on balls in play. Zips is at the point where it's, it's thinking he will, simply because of his history of not uh, having a batting average balls in play at the, at the level you think. I mean, he's a ground ball pitcher, but and they tend to have a higher number, but not to this extent. Uh, maybe I don't. I don't know. I I would like to see that improve, uh, but he. I think his trick is that he tries to allow so few balls into play. So maybe it's better that way instead of allowing more balls into play, but having them turn into outs at a better rate. He's he's a puzzle to me. I don't. I don't even know the answer to that. Unfortunately. No. Not to put you on the spot, but can you think of any other power pitcher to 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 run those those uh, averages on balls on play in the three twenty three thirty range consistently like Noah has? I don't. When when players do that, they're not usually hard tossers. Like I think it's right. Lyndon Rush, uh, if unless I'm misremembering. But his, yeah, that that type of player numbers offhand. Yeah, that's the kind of guy you expect to be. That I can't. There's always there's always pitchers who will do that you know at, at some at some point but consistently in and out in consistently at 310 320 there's no one i can think offhand not not that someone like that doesn't exist but it is kind of unusual for an effective picture because it, it it's weird to think that noah Syndergaard is easier to hit than so many other players because you know if he was easy to hit people will get more hits off of him uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that. To me, it's interesting that he's the guy who this happens to because back in the World Series, he was the, the one who threw the, the real close pitch to the, to the Royals batter, and, and that's the game that they ended up winning. And it's like that pitching inside seems to be almost a little bit lost for him. And you know, I, I almost feel like saying, well, throw one pitch that makes them move their, their, their legs. You know, not not saying throwing at them, just make them move their feet so that they're not so comfortable in the in the batter's box. Yeah, I'd like. I think that if they if they ever actually enforce a pitch clock where they make the batter stand in the box and be uncomfortable, maybe we'd see pitching inside like that more often. Because I think at some level the brushback is a dying art. Yeah, and and it doesn't mean you have to headhunt. You don't have to throw it at their head. You you just make a no, move. No, just I wouldn't make do a that. Move. Yeah. All right, well, I want to uh, take one more question here and, and ask you about Brandon Nimmo. Uh, he, he's always been uh, uh, somebody that I've been rooting for as he's made the trip through the minors, and then last year he finally broke out in, in the way that the, the Mets probably hoped he would when they took him on, on the first round. He had a 150 OPS+, plus, which is a, a, a darn good uh, mark, but, you know, a lot of things went right for him. 
do you think that there's anything in his profile in his background to suggest that he can come close to that type of season again I, th I don't know about 150. Yes. 150 is a pretty high number. Very few players will exceed that regularly. Uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about his performance. One, you had the significant uptake in power. And it's hard, unlike for a pitcher, when a batter's home run spikes, it's not usually uh, a fluke. Uh, except 1987 <laughs> for some reason. Uh, but, but, I mean, he hit, he hit 17 home runs last year. He gets on base a lot through through walking. And I don't think he's going to stop walking. Uh, I, I think that a lot of what he did is sustainable. I think long-term, you're probably looking at a batting average on balls in play, you know, the 330, 340 range. Uh, but really, I, I think that he can maintain a lot of this improvement. The, the power seemed to really uh, be more prevalent in the first half than the second half for Nimmo, and I think it was a case of people trying to, to get ahead of him on, on the count, and uh, he was just having none of the batting practice fastball. When he saw that, he seemed to be all over it, and I think that, that pitchers got maybe got away from that a little bit in the second half, uh, but his, his on-base percentage was even better in the second half, so I don't, I don't know if you can say that it worked. So... Yeah, it's, it's hard to say that from, like, you know, splits, but at least it shows that there's a chance that he can adapt because that, that's kind of the trick. A lot of players can play well, but when the batters or the, or the picture is going to get the book on you, if you can continue to adapt, then, then you really have something there. Uh, he didn't need to hit with as much power in the second half because, you know, when you have, like, a 450 right. on base percentage or whatever it was, you could, you could get away with little power. Uh, I do think you'll see the the power back. Uh, I think pitchers respect him more, and I think I think he'll adjust. He's shown that he's a he's a smart player. Now, I've always been fascinated that he and Michael Conforto were were almost the exact same age. They were born in the same month. One of them went to to, to uh, Conforto went to college, and Nimmo came straight out of out of high school. And to me, it's an open question. You know how close. Can, can Nimmo be as good as Conforto? I think Zips had a uh, Conforto with a considerable advantage this year. Um, but do you think that he can come close to Conforto in, in the next three to five years? He can. Conforto just has, you know, a, a, he has a longer track record of doing it. Nimmo has had to kind of steal playing time when, when things have gone wrong. Now, of course, I guess you can say that with Conforto all, as well, because at first the, the team seemed very reluctant to have him in the plans for some reason, I still I still can't explain that. It was still a little annoying that they that they seemed to have him penned in as a fourth outfielder for a while. Uh, but I think if if he gets the at bats, it'll be a different shape than Conforto. Conforto's not going to have a 400 on base percentage, but he might hit 30 home runs. And I don't think Nimmo's a 30 home run hitter by any means. Uh, but no, I think he can be as good as Conforto. All right, I'm going to cheat and ask you one more question. Um, <laughs> just. Give me your, your overall feeling about the 2019 Mets. I mean, certainly a lot of upheaval from uh, this time last year. And uh, just wh where do you think that they, they stand as an organization? I think, they're, I think they're a hair behind, if you look at the NL East. I think that, that the, uh, the Nationals and Phillies are kind of Tier 1 and the Mets and Braves are like Tier 1A. I like a lot of what the Mets did. But I am concerned about the depth of the pitching rotation because, yeah, if everyone stays healthy, then Vargas probably won't be too damaging as the fifth starter. But as, as we've discovered, people should know, not everything goes according to plan when you're banking on the health <laughs> of your starting pitchers. 
And I think that, say, Cindergard goes down or Wheeler goes down, I think that the wheels start to come off fairly quickly when they have to really reach back into their upper minor's depth, which they don't really have a lot there that can help this year. Fair enough. Now, Dan, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of your work. Do you have anything uh, upcoming that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, nothing, nothing specific. I've, I've completed all the zips for the year, so that's always you know, a nice nice relaxing moment before the season starts. I'll be, I'll be doing my usual set of series previews as we get closer to the season. Uh, but, you know, you can find me at Fangraphs.com. I, I still contribute to ESPN.com. Uh, I do chats every week, uh, every Monday at noon on Fangraphs. So hopefully you guys will check my work out if you haven't already. Well, thanks so much for uh, dropping by the, the podcast this afternoon. Thanks for having me on, thanks for having me on Brian. Well, good night, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>